Lord Jesus, we thank you once again for another opportunity to be in your house and with your people to worship today. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you would speak to us through your word and you would send your Holy Spirit to work in us. We pray that you would use this time uh, to prepare us well, both for worship here as a church and for worship in all of life. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. So I invite you to turn there with me to Hebrews 11. And we'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning. Um, This is the chapter that is sometimes called uh, the Hall of Faith. Because this chapter is all about the doctrine of faith. And it sort of takes us through redemptive history and shows us how faith has played such a central role in the life of God's people. Not just in New Testament times, but also in the Old Testament. So throughout all of salvation history. And uh, just as we get warmed up and and start thinking about this chapter this morning, by way of context, remember, we are in right now the sixth section of the book of Hebrews, which means that uh, we're covering the implications of Christ's superiority. So all of the doctrine, all of the, the rich teaching about Christ that has been going on up to this point in Hebrews is now being sort of applied to the readers. Okay? And so what our author wants to do here is he wants to stress the importance of faith for, uh, for Christians. And this is why he says here in verse 39 of chapter 10, right before the text that we're getting into this morning, he says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Because right before that, he was treating all about this, the subject of Jesus as our high priest and Jesus as the better sacrifice. And as we talked about last week, one of the implications of that doctrine is that you know, we have full forgiveness of sins, which is amazing. But also in having that full forgiveness of sins, that doesn't give us a license to continue sinning. Now, the true faith is going to serve Christ and going to pursue obedience and holy life. So... Our author here is telling his readers to, in light of everything Christ has done, now live by faith, just like Habakkuk was saying so long ago. So that is why now in chapter 11, our author is bringing us into this rich discussion of the doctrine of faith. Because he wants to show how important that faith is for God's people. So let's, uh, let's read this passage here. I'm going to read all of chapter 11 because we're going to talk about all of it from a bird's eye view. But pay attention to the three parts of this passage. Because firstly, what he's going to do is he's going to give us a definition of faith, a really, really strong definition of faith. And then secondly, he takes us through the history of faith, shows us how faith has been at work throughout all of history. And then at the very end of the chapter, he tells us then, therefore, what is the importance of faith? Why is it important and what does it mean for us? So let's look at the passage then. I'll read it for you here. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. 
And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been seeking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You could quite easily do an entire Sunday School series just on this one chapter, as you can imagine, with the content and and everything. It just is so much stuff. But again, my goal in this series has been to approach Hebrews from a bird's eye view so we don't lose perspective of the big picture. Because there's a whole lot of details that we could get lost in and just really spend a lot of time zoning in on. But I want to keep us a little bit higher than that and just focus on the big picture stuff going on here. You can tell that in this chapter, it's all about the doctrine of faith. We are all about faith in this chapter. And the first thing that our author wants to do is he wants to give us a very clear and what I think is quite a profound definition for the word faith, for the concept of faith. And that definition is in these first couple of verses before he gets into the history. And notice in verse 1, he gives us two key components for this doctrine of faith. What is faith? Verse 1. Now, faith is, number one, the assurance of things hoped for. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting here is is if, if you look at the Greek text, that word assurance is the word hypostasis. And hypostasis in the Greek simply means the standing under or the thing which stands under something. And so it's used literally for foundation. That's how we translate it in English if we're going to translate it literally. Just foundation. Uh, But metaphorically, it means the thing on which your idea is grounded. So that's why it's translated here as assurance. So it's a good translation. But etymologically, literally, it means foundation. So faith is the foundation for what? For things hoped for. So you have here in this first aspect of the definition of faith a connection between faith as a foundation and faith being a foundation which leads to things hoped for. And this is something that particularly the medieval theologians were really keen on highlighting and focusing on, is this relationship between the concepts of faith and hope. And one theologian who was really good at at sort of bringing out this distinction was a guy named Augustine. I'm sure you've probably heard of Augustine. He comes up quite a bit in, uh, in sermons and, and different things. But Augustine was probably the most significant theologian in Christian history ever. Maybe up until Martin Luther. Maybe you could say Luther is number one. But Augustine's right up there with Martin Luther. And Augustine wrote a book called Enchiridion. And uh, in that book, he spends the entire book talking about 
the three Christian virtues. And the three Christian virtues are, you've heard of them, faith, hope, and love. And Augustine wants to argue that all three of those things always go together. Because what Augustine explains is that faith is understanding the doctrines of the gospel. You're understanding the teachings of scripture. It's sort of the foundation. But he said that what's always connected with faith is hope. And hope is trust in the promises of God. And this is the same doctrine that the reformers brought out when they were understanding the doctrine of faith as well, and that they used some slightly different terms. But what the reformers were trying to say is that faith is more than just an understanding of basic fundamental doctrines. Because as Augustine says, the the apostle James tells us that demons believe. Demons believe in God and they shudder. So there has to be something more than faith and just understanding doctrines. And that's what the author of Hebrews is bringing out here, that faith is something that's leading to something else. It's not just assenting to certain doctrines, but faith itself is leading and necessarily must go hand in hand with things hoped for, namely the promises of God. So faith lays hold of God's promises, those things that are hoped for. That's what he's talking about here when he says that faith is the foundation of things hoped for. It is the holding fast to the promises of God. Faith and hope are going together. They are inseparably connected. But there's a second thing that he says about faith. Not only is faith the foundation or assurance of things hoped for, but there's a second definition here. And he says that faith is also the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. And there's nothing wrong with that translation either. That's great. But what's interesting is that that word conviction in the Greek is literally, it means proof. It's actually a forensic or a legal term. It's it's the term that you use when you go before a court and you offer proof for someone's innocence. You're stating a proof or you're stating a rebuke or something. So literally, it's, it's a little stronger than conviction. It's not just that faith is the conviction of things not seen, but it's that faith is the proof of things not seen. The idea here is that faith itself is a kind of knowledge that doesn't require absolutely proof. And you think about that for a second. He's not saying here that Faith that if we believe something, we can't also use proofs to you know, support our faith, that we can't engage in you know, trying to argue for God's existence if we believe in God or something. But what he's trying to say here is he's trying to stress the fact that when we talk about the doctrine of faith in Christianity, we're not talking about faith that is completely devoid of actually truly knowing something. When we say we believe in God, when we say, for example, we believe in uh, that this is the word of God. We believe this is the word of God. This, this book right here we call the Bible. When we say we believe that this is the word of God, we're not saying that, you know, well, we just sort of hope that this is God's word. We don't really know. No, the Christian doctrine of faith says that when we believe something, because faith is the work of the Holy Spirit, we, it actually is a kind of knowledge to believe Genuine faith is a kind of knowledge 
You see that? Now, this is why this is important. You may be thinking, I'm not really sure what you're getting at there. Why, why does this matter? Well, here's why it matters. It matters a lot in our own day and age. Because our own day and age has been profoundly impacted by a philosophical movement called the Enlightenment. Maybe you guys have heard of the Enlightenment before, right? The Enlightenment was all about casting off history, casting off presuppositions, casting off any kind of bias so that we can discover truth by means of the use of reason. And for Enlightenment philosophers, the idea was you can't really know something unless you can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt using reason or science, depending on which Enlightenment philosopher you're talking about. You cannot actually say that you know something unless you can prove it beyond doubt. Now, that is a, an idea that many Christians today have actually begun to embrace a little bit. The idea that, well, you know, you can't really believe that the Bible is the word of God unless you engage in a serious study of history and understanding textual criticism and the, the biblical languages and all these things. And, and it's only after you've done all of this research, all of this extra work, once you've proven that the Bible is the word of God, then you can believe it. You see, in that schema, you have to know something before you can believe it. You see that? That's Enlightenment thinking. That's profoundly the way that modern thinking works. You have to understand or know something before you can have faith in that thing. In the biblical model, faith and knowledge is completely the opposite, completely the reverse. What the medieval theologians stressed is not that understanding comes before faith, but rather it's that faith comes before understanding. In fact, the motto of many medieval theologians was fides quaerens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. And so when we come to the doctrines of the faith, we come first with a posture of faith. We say we believe it, and then I'm going to seek to understand it. Faith comes first, then understanding. That is what the author of Hebrews is teaching here about the nature of Christian faith. Faith is not only the foundation of things hoped for, but it is also the proof of things unseen. It is a kind of knowledge. And that is why in verse 3 he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. In the Greek there, the word understand, that's just the normal Greek word for knowledge. In fact, it's the verbal form of the Greek word for the mind, for the intellect. By faith, we know. Not by faith, we sort of just assume that the earth was created. By faith, we have a true intellectual knowledge that God created the world. And you can see, we have to have faith if we're going to believe that God created the world. We have to do that because there's no way we can possibly prove beyond any comprehensible doubt that God created the world. Because we were not there when God created the world. It happened before we existed. We can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. The only thing we can do is we can rely on eyewitness testimony. The only one who was there to see it was God. 
So we've got to trust him. And in that faith, that's not a setting aside of, intellect, of, of the intellect or of knowledge. When we say we have faith that God created the world, we know that. That is true, genuine knowledge. And so from a posture of faith, then, we can pursue understanding. As you can see, the modern world, when they say you've got to understand and prove something before you can believe it, that's exactly the opposite in Scripture. In Scripture, faith seeks understanding. And that's what's being taught here in these first couple of verses. And that's why faith is so powerful. That's why it is so central to being a Christian, to being of the people of God. And that's precisely why our author then goes through the history of God's people here to explain to us the absolute centrality of faith as a characteristic of God's people. And so he goes through this long list of major biblical figures, mostly in the book of Genesis, but also continuing throughout And in fact, he even says he doesn't have time to tell you about all the characters. He doesn't have time to explain them all. But he focuses very quickly on just a few of them. He tells us, for example, of of the person of Abel. And he says, Abel, verse 4, by faith, God accepts sacrifices. With regard to Enoch, by faith, God brings the believer to heaven. Noah, by faith, God brings salvation. Abraham and Sarah, by faith, God fulfills his promises. Now notice then that in verses 13 uh, and following, notice what he says about specifically Abraham and Sarah, but also of everyone in this age. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. So the people in this period, they were living with a huge amount of faith because they did not receive what God was promising them. God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, through your seed, I'm going to send Christ. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, but Abraham never saw the actual Messiah. He had to have a profound amount of faith in the promises of God. A profound amount of foundation for things hoped for. And the author of Hebrews continues here. He goes through Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Israel, and a whole lot of other people. Showing how central faith was for the people of God in all this time. And that brings us then to his third section at the end here. Where he wants to emphasize to his readers. What does all this mean? You've got your definition of faith. You've got the importance of faith throughout all of history. Now, who cares? Why does this matter to you? And he says in verse 39, And all these, as all these people he's been talking about, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
Now, what he's saying here is that the Old Testament saints, though they had the same faith as we do, faith in Christ, they did not receive the things that were promised. Now, he's not talking here about forgiveness of sins. Okay? The Old Testament saints had full remission of sins. And we can see that sort of thing if we were to turn to Psalm 32, where David so clearly sets forth that he has received full remission of sins. But what, he's, what the author of Hebrews is talking about here is not that they didn't receive forgiveness of sins. What he's saying is they didn't receive the substance of what was promised, namely the one who would accomplish the forgiveness of sins. And that was Christ. And further, not only did they not receive Christ at that point, historically, but they also did not receive the heavenly city that we were just told Abraham was looking forward to. And that's something we also haven't experienced. We've got the already aspect of our salvation. We've got justification now. We are in the process of sanctification. But we are still awaiting the full consummation of God's promises. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth. We're not in that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven described in Revelation. We're still waiting for those things. And so our author is drawing a comparison here. He wants us to see... That the Old Testament saints, though they were living before Christ, they were still exercising profound amounts of faith. In fact, if the Old Testament saints exercised such a profound level of faith when they had not even received the substance of the promises, namely Christ, then how much more should we be expected to exercise faith now as New Testament Christians? When we have had the substance of the promises delivered to us with the most profound clarity in all of redemptive history. Abraham was looking forward to the Christ, but he didn't know a lot more than that. We know a lot more than that. We have four gospel accounts to tell us who he is. How much more ought we to be exercising faith in the promises of God when we have lived so much farther in history and we have seen him fulfill his promises in the past? And you see how central then faith is to the life of the Christian because as it is the foundation for those promises of God, for our trust in those things that we are to hope in, it is absolutely essential that like all of these Old Testament saints, we exercise this profound level of faith in the promises of God delivered to us in Scripture. If the Old Testament saints could do it with what little they understood compared to the great level of clarity that we have, how much more should we not be doing the same? And you can see that our author goes to great lengths in verses 34 and following to explain the kinds of terrible things that these people underwent by faith in the promises of God. Some, this is verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. 
Now, I don't know what the future holds in our modern world, but it's not looking super bright for Christians. We're in a decent place right now because we don't really have any real genuine persecution in the States at this point. And I, generally speaking, am an optimist. I don't like to preach doom and gloom about what the future might hold. But let's be honest, right? We know the the general trajectory of the culture at the moment. And as the years go on, I don't think it's too much to say that it's going to get harder and harder and harder to be a Christian, to hold to what the Scripture teaches. And yet when we look back to the Old Testament saints, they, they underwent profound amounts of persecution. Described here, you can read about it in the Old Testament. And yet they, with what little they understood about the promises of God, held fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. How much more ought we to do that? Only through the power of the Spirit... Only through God's preserving work in us. But the text here calls us to live lives faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is absolutely essential for us to do. And so be encouraged by that. That if the faith that God gives to his people, that preserving faith, if that is strong enough to help the Old Testament saints go through everything that they had to go through, it is certainly strong enough to help us go through the things we need to go through right now and anything else that God calls us to. He always gives us exactly what we need to do what he's called us to do. And so let's thank God for that this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice today that you have given us everything that we need to do what you've called us to do. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to understand this great doctrine of faith. Lord, we know that faith is not something that we muster up ourselves. We know that. Your word teaches us that faith is a gift from you, given by the effectual power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to work that faith deeply in us so that we could be like these great men and women of old described for us here in Hebrews 11. Lord, work in us like you worked in them. And we give you all the glory for all of the preserving work that you do in us. Lord, help us be faithful and help us to hold fast to your word. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.